This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Prakash Gada, a director of foregut surgery at Overlake Medical Center and Clinics in Bellevue, Washington. Dr. Gada, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great opportunity to connect with your audience. Fantastic. Well, I know we have a lot to talk about, but before we dive into our discussion, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and your background? Yes. Um, so I've had an interesting background. Uh, I grew up in the Middle East. Uh, I went to uh, medical school in India, which is where my parents were from. Um, I arrived in these uh, fair shores in 2000. Um, actually, landed in Seattle as my first U.S. city. And um, uh, through the subsequent seven or seven years or so, I uh, completed my surgical training in uh, various parts of the U.S., including Philadelphia, Illinois, and Portland. And then I started uh, work as an assistant professor at uh, the University Hospital in Cincinnati uh, before I moved back to the Seattle area around 12 years ago. Got it. And, you know, it's such an interesting career journey. And um, what do you like about being um, in Washington that really has kept you there for the past 12 years? It's a great question. Um, as an immigrant to the nation, um, you know, and having trained all over, uh, we have I had the opportunity to go anywhere I want. Um, so uh, part of it was where family was. Um, and uh, all of my wife's family is on the East Coast, so therefore I chose to be here. No, uh, that was a joke. That was a joke. Um, n- no, so it was uh, partly family. Also, um, there's a lot to do in the Pacific Northwest. Um, as we were raising our children, um, they have the opportunity to ski and water activities, just sort of the great outdoors, as well as um, the, the Pacific Northwest, which is where I spend a lot of my time, uh, is, is sort of just there's something about the secret sauce here um, that if you didn't live here, you wouldn't understand and you wouldn't want people to know. Yes, it rains, but there is uh, so much that comes with that. The greenery, uh, the natural environment, um, the openness and the diversity that exists here. So we're very blessed to be here. Absolutely. That, that sounds fantastic. Here in Chicago, where it's right now very cold and snowy, um, <laughs> it sounds amazing. So yeah. I wanted to know, um, what is the most exciting thing that you see happening right now in GI today based on your focus of your practice? It's a great question. Um, I think that medicine is evolving as it should. If medicine or delivery of medicine is stagnant, then there's something wrong. And the reason it's evolving is as we develop new drugs, um, new methods of diagnosis, treatment mechanisms uh, pertaining to surgery, instrumentation devices have also evolved. Um, One of the biggest changes that has occurred over the last 10 years is uh, the adoption of robotics in uh, care delivery, as in performing an operation that's traditionally not done on the robot. I would consider this as an enabling technology, which means that it allows you to deliver minimally invasive surgery better, faster, with shorter discharge rate, with equivalent or most likely less complications over the long term. Uh, One of the most exciting things that I feel that's happening that's essentially forcing training programs to change is the fact that the new generation of trainees that we're training now um, that are going to be out in practice in the next few years have all come to expect um, having access to robotics because they know they may need to learn that or be able to offer it to their patients no matter what community they go. 
Um, and that has put a, a, you know, a welcome highlight into programs like ours and, and my own ability to train these programs. So I, we get calls from residency programs in the local area as well as uh, nationally to be able to send their residents to train us because uh, more traditional training programs have been slower to adopt to uh, robotic technology. This is essentially a repeat of what happened 30 years ago when laparoscopy or minimally invasive surgery first came on and then essentially changed the way uh, care was delivered. Very specifically about the disease set that I, I focus on, which is the upper um, GI tract, the esophagus and stomach, one of the biggest challenges we have today is the, uh, the rise of esophageal cancer. There's been an astronomical increase in the incidence of this uh, uh, relatively new type of uh, carcinoma of the esophagus, adenocarcinoma, which is uh, more related to reflux disease. Uh, the, facts, the fact, uh, I mean, this is after decades of unopposed reflux, untreated reflux on patients. Um, the fact that the incidence is actually rising in, in the setting of all other GI malignancies actually decreasing represents a failure on many levers, levels in the healthcare system. So this would be diagnosis, screening, as well as uh, uh, having the right surgical training programs uh, to be able to deliver um, excellent surgical outcomes. So uh, I, I would like to see us in, in the subspecialty that I represent esophageal surgery. This is not bariatric surgery. This is esophageal surgery for the, for the you know, non-bariatric esophageal surgery as sort of the tip of the iceberg and also the tip of the spear that is um, allowing us an ability to kind of fight back. This is one of the few cancers that is hard to manage um, and a very high incidence of mortality because they're diagnosed late. Uh, so we are trying to change the culture um, across um, specialties, GI, ENT, surgery, and this is something that's very important to us at, at a surgical society level, and I'm involved at every level uh, to be able to exact that change. Uh, one of the, the greatest things I hope to accomplish in the Pacific Northwest is uh, deliver care that's specific, uh, including early diagnosis, prevention, and treatment of cancer, uh, early diagnosis and treatment for, for esophageal cancer could include reflux surgery, and there's many new treatment mechanisms um, for reflux surgery that we are offering now that uh, none of the other programs locally offer, um, which is also part of your answer for what's most exciting in GI surgery right now. So there's a lot of things that are coming together. The, the big, the hardest part is recognition that there is a market out there um, there is a need out there uh, from a hospital system uh, having to recognize that, and there is a need to create that position, uh, which they did for me here, and also all the support that comes with it. So there's many, many pieces. We can talk about it forever, uh, but that's a short answer. Got it. That's, you know, just really interesting to think about and obviously a huge issue and challenge for patients in, in healthcare systems across the U.S. When you're looking at what you've built there at Overlake Medical Center and clinics, um, what kind of, I guess, investment does it take to really start something like that um, for other health systems who are seeing this as a community need? So um, it's a great question. The, the, uh, the number one need is, as I mentioned, is recognition. Um, that something has to change from uh, traditional treatment models. The next hardest thing is, you know, finding the right person. We were fortunate to find each other. 
but also there's there could be significant investment pieces like capital investments. For example, I'm an advocate of robotic surgery. Um, uh, when we identify there's an access issue, as in if I was to join or any uh, surgeon, it could be colorectal or whatever specialty that utilizes robotic technology, was to join a new hospital system, one of the first questions we tend to ask is, uh, do we have enough lock time, robot time? Do we have enough staffing? Do we have enough robots? Um, so one of the things that uh, uh, Overlake Hospital has done is essentially acquire or purchase new robotic technology or new robots to be able to solve that issue, which would help me, uh, the community, and also the surgeons that have been here for providing excellent work for years and years. So from an infrastructure perspective, this capital need, uh, which in some ways is easy, even though this is a very expensive piece of capital. But the second piece that is that also comes along with it is, do you have adequately trained staff? And do you have support to very gently, from the inside, change the culture to say, hey, it's okay to do robotics. It's okay to do it late at night. It's also okay uh, from the perspective of the referral docs, because we're a specialty, we get referred patients by specialty, so we have to earn business. We're like your local realtor or your used car salesman. We have to earn that business from the community. And that for that, we have to have a convincing story, be well-trained, be available, also um, uh, be able to partner with uh, these other specialties to say, hey, I can take care of patients in maybe closer to where they live or in a better way and offering these three or four new things. So several pieces are coming together from an infrastructure perspective, and uh, it's important when we start a new program to be able to gauge the support before you go in and before and once you go in to be able to engage those, um, uh, those players and harness um, every ability uh, to be able to make a stand up such an excellent program. That's fantastic. Thank you for going through that with us. Now, I know obviously the past couple of years have been challenging with the COVID-19 pandemic. What do you think the lasting legacy will be of COVID-19? Yeah, so, uh, so for, for me, I have, I have two answers to that. So I was personally affected by COVID-19 as, as so many of us have been. Um, I would tell you, Acquiring a sort of contracting COVID-19 in March of 2020, essentially in the first quarter of the pandemic, uh, felt different than it does today, not to take away from um, anyone suffering today. Uh, if, you re if everyone re rewind to two years ago, uh, there was this fear, this uncertainty of this new virus that we didn't understand, didn't recognize, didn't have good treatments for, um, also obviously didn't have a vaccination for. Um, so having gone through that personally and, and you know, still affected uh, to some degree where having never been a patient before, I've seen all these specialists and pulmonologists, primary care doctors trying to understand how it has affected my body. I, I'm not sure uh, what the long-term effect of that uh, infection would be for me personally, and I'm hopeful that it, there, there aren't any lasting effects. But the, the biggest, I think the biggest thing I learned um, with, in co with having get, gotten COVID-19 as well as being in a hospital that was uh, hammered by it, as was every other hospital, was the resilience of the, he of the healthcare workforce. Um, and, and I know we like to thank them, um, but to be on the inside, to see 
essentially what I would consider their bravery, their valor in the face of this, uh, these waves of onslaughts, to be able to hold your professionalism and your ability to deliver compassionate care. Very few people can do that, and that's why I call healthcare calling. So it, is, it has helped re-energize my belief in, um, in this as a, uh, um, as, as a sort of profession, uh, and this is everyone, from the person sweeping the floors to the CEO of the hospital system, who is also a healthcare worker. As much as they they get uh, uh, you know they get yelled at a lot. Um, so this is an onslaught. That, and despite trying circumstances, we're still here, and we will be here for the next pandemic. So that's kind of on the personal side. But uh, specific to surgery, surgery and COVID-19, although. I wasn't on the front lines as an ER provider or a hospitalist managing patients. I can tell you COVID-19 had, had a massive disruptive effect with uh, surgery, delivery of surgery. So in the last year, 2021, I can remember we had at least three to four major COVID shutdowns, um, you know, coinciding with uh, peaks of whatever variant was out there, Omicron or Delta. What that means is there's a significant delivery, uh, there's a significant de- delay in delivery of care. This would mean the patient coming in for colon cancer screening or upper endoscopy or mammogram delaying care, uh, whether they wanted to or not. So re- reduction in access out there in the community over the next one or two years as things settle and hopefully the pandemic essentially goes away or becomes endemic um, and we have fewer shutdowns we are going to see a wave of patients with cancer at a later stage than they uh, we normally would have. Uh, this again represents a, fa- a failure on multiple levels, as well as the fact that this, uh, from an infrastructure perspective, uh, COVID had had a crushing blow on uh, infrastructure resources, staffing, and morale. So there's a lot of things that we have to heal from. Every healthcare provider needs that nurturing and healing to be able to sort of come back uh, and reset and come back to be able to provide compassionate care, uh, it's a challenge. And I don't know if anybody knows the answer to that. From a surgical OR perspective, um, because of the multiple shutdowns, because of the uh, uh, several weeks where we weren't able to do elective cases and could only do some emergent cases or cancer cases that couldn't wait, there's been a huge attrition in uh, uh, hospital staff. Hospitals have not been able to retain um, nursing staff, for example. Nurses can now travel um, out of state or even within the state or return to the same job and get paid three times as much. That's just kind of how the market has evolved. Um, Nursing staff are, uh, if, if you find the right job, some of these positions are extremely lucrative. I would I would find it extremely difficult to turn it down myself. So this is a this is something that the hospital systems have to solve. Um, and if you don't have staffing, we don't have care delivery. We we can't do cancer surgeries, or there's going to be a delay in care. So there's an offset, a problem that I don't think anyone has great answers to. But ultimately, I'm hopeful that uh, we will settle back down to uh, you know the new um, uh, the new normal. Uh, and I don't think the new normal will ever be like the old normal. We will never be the same again. 
Got it. it. That's just, you know, amazing to think about how much things have changed in two years. And as you mentioned, you know, changed for forever, you know, in thinking about what happened before the pandemic and in how things have changed now and the mindset and just the economics and politics of the whole situation is fascinating. So um, it, it was just really interesting to hear your thoughts there and kind of building on that and looking ahead into the future. Where do you see some of the opportunities for innovation? I know we've talked a little bit about um, robotics and some of the exciting things there, but I just love your perspective on what's going to be in the forefront going forward. Yeah, so there's, there's two things um, I would say. Briefly, uh, robotics is not really robotics. It's essentially a tool that's controlled by the surgeon, allows the surgeon to be better, I feel. Um, it, it will be, and it, it currently is, hasn't been harnessed enough, and I'm working on uh, with multiple, uh, multiple medical device companies of developing this or next iteration, next generation technology. Not only will the robot be a great way of delivering or allowing us to perform surgery, but it will be a great way to collect data from the way we perform surgery, essentially giving us a score, which we can share privately amongst ourselves as a way of making us better. This is a great training mechanism also to be able to tell your resident, oh, you use this instrument too many times, there's so much tension and pulley force, et cetera, and converting that into a score, allowing us to become better surgeons. Ultimately, artificial intelligence, which is a buzzword, will equal automation in robotic surgery and technology, which also means there will be segments of an operation within the next five to 10 years, um, maybe shorter, that will be automated. So the, the, it's a self-driving robot for certain components, very similar to the pilot allowing the computer to fly the plane, or you, if you drive a Tesla, uh, doing the self-driving um, on the highway. So this is something that will make us better. And um, there are people that are opposed to that. There will always be and those people will ultimately retire, and they will not be opposition. This is kind of the new generational thing. I, I, I very much support that. Very specifically, uh, and I feel that I'm on the cutting edge of that, very fortunate to be in this position where I get calls from device companies to, to, to essentially help them develop this field, and I think it's the future. It's very important also to our future space missions and Mars missions, et cetera, um, to be able to deliver care using this technology. Very specific to... Uh, esophageal diseases and reflux surgery, uh, there are new mechanisms for providing anti-reflux surgeries different than the traditional surgery, which has its side effects around 15 to 20% failure rate at 10 years, as well as it's a very unpopular operation that the GI specialists don't like to send us patients for. That's, I think, one of the reasons esophageal cancer is on the rise, because it's surgery for reflux is so unpopular. Only 20,000 surgeries are done in the year, whereas 43 million Americans are on reflux medicine uh, in the nation. That's like more than a third of the adult population. There's a huge offset here. One of the answers to that is to be able to offer newer, at least two new, very innovative, maybe three new innovative um, anti-reflux surgery procedures such as the transoral fundoplication or the magnetic sphincter augmentation, uh, also a technology called strider, which is radiofrequency ablation on the inner side of the lower esophagus, all of which we are providing here at Overlake. And there is no other center in the entire Pacific Northwest uh, that will have a comprehensive center that will offer all surgical options at volume other than ours. And I'm very committed to creating that center. And I'm also committed to breaking, changing, 
referral patterns, uh, which are quite traditional, even in a sort of progressive part of the country like this, um, because something needs to change. And I believe the answer can't be we're going to continue to do things the way we were 25 years ago. I don't think that's an acceptable answer. And I'm here to solve that problem. Outstanding. That um, all sounds like it, you know, it's such a um, big challenge and, and a big thing ahead, but also I'm sure exciting to be able to dig into what that really means and how to really make a significant change within the community. Dr. Gada, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really interesting conversation and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you, Laura, for this great opportunity. I hope to connect with you again.